0: Today's scripture reading is from John 3, 1 through 15. Please read with me the verses in bold. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sounds, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning again. Good morning. Good morning. All right. I think I I hear myself. Uh, good morning, uh, my name is Daniel, one of the pastors here, thankful to be worshiping with you here this morning. Um, well, many of us, I think, I think, can share a story of an encounter with a famous person, maybe, whether a celebrity in the form of an actor or actress or an athlete, or some local hero, I'm sure we all have our stories, and I'm, I'm sure we can all share a moment or a picture of such an encounter. Sometimes we bump into them by purely, uh, purely by chance, and at other times we go out of our way to meet them. I may have shared in a previous sermon my run-in with the actor Kevin Costner, but that may be a story for a different time. The story I wanna share with you this morning is of an encounter with a celebrity musician that happened when I was in high school. I heard this singer-songwriter was coming into town for a concert and that he would be signing autographs at a nearby bookstore. And no, it was not Bono or Phil Collins or Billy Joel. It was not Rod Stewart, MC Hammer, or Sting. I may be aging myself a little bit, no, but in high school, uh, I fell in love with a Christian recording artist by the name of Stephen Curtis Chapman. I can tell there's a few who (laughs) can relate. Um, You may or may not have heard of him, that's okay, but... uh, then he wasn't what he is now an artist and performer of contemporary christian music with the most awards and those categories and 25 albums to his name back then he was just starting out and at this signing event you have to remember that i was young and foolish i asked him mr chapman i would love to touch your shoes You know, it was my way of saying, uh, I worship the ground you walk on. I was so stupid. (laughs) Really, really stupid. And he said, I don't know why you would. And he stuck out his wingtip shoes from under the table, and I touched them. (laughs) Our story this morning... (laughs) is of an encounter that one man has with Jesus in the night. John, the gospel writer, describes that encounter this way. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is. Is with you. If you're just joining us, we're in the second week of a new sermon series we're calling Encounters with Jesus. And one of the most striking features in the Gospel of John is the series of encounters between Jesus and various ordinary individuals. As you read through the stories, you get the sense that you are eavesdropping on private conversations Jesus has with individuals just a quick thought about encounters and when you come across these encounters in the book of john in the gospel of john i think there are uh, just a few observations Uh, one i would say every encounter reveals a little bit more about the person and the work of christ If anything, these encounters, a series of them in the book of John, again, we know that uh, Jesus met with all sorts of people, men, women, poor, rich, people in high-ranking positions, and nobodies. He met with young and with old, but every encounter that we read in the Gospels, again, in the Gospel of John, you get a little bit more of a perspective of who jesus was who jesus is that he is who he said he was and we see the person and the work of christ each conversation a little bit more about what he came to do and why he came to do it it tells us a little bit more about who he is his priorities his purpose his heart's These encounters are supposed to develop in us a deep sense of the importance of Jesus, that he's more than just a man, that he's more than just a prophet, that he's more than just a good teacher or or a good human being. He's more than just an, an ordinary person like you and me. Secondly, as you read about these encounters in the Gospel of John, you see a transformation that happens in the lives of those who meet him. It's not just ordinary encounters. I met him, I took a picture with her, right? These are lives that are changed as a result of this encounter, those who meet him. You see, a puzzled thinker sees the answers to his questions. A confident teacher suddenly finds he has so much to learn. A shunned woman, we'll look at next week, runs back to her village to spread the news. A condemned sinner finds forgiveness. Grief-stricken sisters are given hope. A tearful Mary becomes confident messenger to the others who are still cowering in fear after the death of Jesus on the cross. You don't leave the same person after you have met and had an encounter with Jesus. Last week, Pastor Brad described for us in the first of our sermon series an encounter that Mary, the mother of Jesus, has with her son at a wedding celebration in a little town called Cana. Now, we know that she knows that Jesus is her son. We can hardly call a moment at a wedding an encounter when it describes a son and his mother, or a mother and her son. I mean, you would, you would never describe an occasion with any of your family an encounter, would you? But she does. Mary has an encounter with Jesus at a family wedding. There's a crisis on hand. There's no wine, or they're running out of wine at a wedding, and some of you would absolutely agree with that. When, there's, uh, when the rind has run out, there's a crisis on hand. Pastor Brad mentioned, you will know if you have met the real Jesus by the realization that you are not in control of that encounter. And you get the sense, again, each of these encounters, you realize that you're not, you're not the one controlling the agenda. You're not directing the conversations. Uh, You may be asking the questions, but Jesus is answering a a totally different one. I mean, it's strange how this whole thing works. I mean, people come to Jesus and ask him a question, and and Jesus asks them a question in return. These are strange conversations, and we know that in in these encounters, you realize that you're not in control of that encounter. It's a profound Thought when you realize that you are not in control of that encounter. A few things about Nicodemus. There's an interesting exchange between Nicodemus and Jesus in our story. Nicodemus says, I've heard about you. He had a high opinion about Jesus. He had followed the reports about Jesus and drew a conclusion that Jesus is able to do Signs Again, it's revealed to us in John chapter 2 that that was the first of many signs that Jesus performed. And so again, Nicodemus draws this conclusion that he's able to do signs. I'm sorry, Nicodemus draws these conclusions that Jesus can do signs, that these signs come from God. And says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you do if God were not with you. A profound thought. And again, Nicodemus assumes he's in charge of the conversation. He's set the topic, right? The subject matter. He's in control of the encounter. He attempts to set the topic that Jesus' miracles prove that he is a teacher appointed by God. And as Jesus usually does, he changes the topic of the conversation quickly. Jesus seems to be answering a question not asked by Nicodemus. I mean, it's like I said, when you read through John chapter 3, the first 15 verses, you get this, like, are they hearing each other? He changes the topic. He answers the question, you should have asked. For Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In order for us to understand this story, we need to know two things about Nicodemus. First, he was a Pharisee. If you are a student of of the Bible, you probably have a negative view of the Pharisees. In the first century, Pharisees were widely respected for their intense piety and deep scholarship. They were men devoted, uh, who were devoted um, to the study of the Torah and its application to daily life. They truly wanted to obey God's law. This meant that studying the Bible for hours each day, praying two hours each day, giving a tithe of all that they possessed, and in general being meticulous about their morality. Some say that, again, according to Josephus, a historian, some say there were only 6,000 Pharisees, and Nicodemus was one of them. Pharisees in that day were held in high esteem. Two, Nicodemus wasn't just a Pharisee, he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Think about 6,000 being an elite group, 70 Seventy Jewish ruling council, they mediated disputes, they settled legal matters so that the Romans, again, the rule in which they, the Israelites lived, wouldn't have to get involved. And so you might, as you might expect, only the best were elected to such a prestigious position as a ruler of the Jewish council. So the fact that Nicodemus was part of the ruling council meant that he must have been highly respected by his peers, a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jewish council. The Gospel of John is the only gospel in which Nicodemus is mentioned. No other gospel mentions him, and other than in this passage that we are looking at this morning, Nicodemus appears two additional times in the book of John, one at the very, very end, when Nicodemus is... Is named as one who buried the body of Jesus. He is a Pharisee who has taken a keen interest in Jesus and he comes to Jesus in the night. Something else about Nicodemus he was a good person. He was a person of accomplishment. He was well studied, respected by his peers. He was a person of status. From what we can tell from the passage and his titles, he was a good person. We might use a metric, perhaps a definition of good as one who follows the rules. One who doesn't break the laws. One who doesn't commit crimes or lies or cheats. Or we might determine whether someone is good by asking those around them, do you think that he is good? do you think that I'm good? We can use other measurements of goodness, and pardon the reference, but psychology today uses four cardinal virtues that lead to a virtuous life on the path of goodness, and says, these define a good person. Prudence, wisdom, temperance, justice, and fortitude. Interesting. Let me ask you, do you consider yourself a pretty good person? Before you respond, I'll say, I think I am. I pay (laughs) my peers. I pay my taxes. I obey most of the laws. I try really, really hard to stay under the speed limit. I try. I'm nice. Or at least I'm cordial with my neighbors and with friends. I treat others fairly and treat them the way I would want to be treated. I try to do right by everyone. I try to make good decisions more than my share of bad ones. Do you think you are as good as me.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, honestly, I'm pretty exemplary. I'm not. Man, if you only knew me. <laughs> you know, as in re- I mean, in regards to being a good Christian, I try to be that too. We try to earn the favor of God by a whole slew of various metrics. We, uh, these by themselves are not bad things. We think about attendance and reading of the Bible, praying, making resolutions to do better, to be better. I mean, all sorts of things that are these metrics that we set up for ourselves to measure how good we are. But you and I both know that these are not... These are not... Um, uh, metric of goodness you see we do these things as a result of an encounter and if this is you if i've just described you and if you were honest with yourself how you view yourself and you're like me a good person Exemplary, a rule follower. in some regard that Nicodemus represents all of us. He stands for every good, decent, law-abiding, upstanding citizen who ever lived. He was a good man who knew about God and demonstrated by his life that he knew God and wanted to obey God. The strangeness of this story is that it reminds us that religion is good, but it's not enough. Being good is good. But it's not enough. Jesus points out the fact that you don't find eternal life by practicing the Torah. You don't find eternal life by obeying the law, by keeping the rules. For you see, what Paul describes for us is that the law is not able to give life. Life. Following laws could never satisfy the inner yearnings of our heart, something that we know only God's grace could provide. For you see, being religious is never enough. Nicodemus understood his righteousness and faith in terms of how well he followed the Jewish laws. What Nicodemus discovered that this religion wasn't enough to meet the need in his own heart. And that's why he comes to Jesus in the night. And Jesus tells Nicodemus that the only way to find what he is looking for is to be born again. Again, strange language. People misunderstand what it means to be born again. Again, I think our culture has redefined some of those terms. Jesus spoke these words not to some immoral outcast, not to some Gentile, according to the Jews, but to, the one, to one of the most religious men of his day. By any standard, Nicodemus was a good man, and a, certainly a man we would admire for his intense devotion to God. Despite all his learning, Nicodemus is baffled by the sayings of Jesus. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Take this to heart. Nicodemus is a great man, a man of rank, and yet Jesus says to him, you must be born again. Jesus explains for Nicodemus and for us, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. People who hope to enter God's kingdom must be born in a new way, not by human striving, but by a rebirth that only God can bring, not by the law or an observance of the rules, but by the grace of God, not by some religion, but by a relationship with a God who created us and created us to have a relationship with him. See, the idea of rebirth wasn't common during the time of Jesus, but some religious uh, religions call commitment to their faith a rebirth, and we often talk the same way. Uh, if, an, if an entertainer or an athlete disappears and comes back stronger, we call it a rebirth. When people get a fresh start after tragedy or hardship, they feel reborn. And yes, Jesus means all of that, but much more. He talks about a rebirth from above, from God. Everyone must be born twice. Jesus says they are born of water and they are born of the spirit. And he says, without it, no one can see or enter the kingdom of God and no one will ever taste resurrection and renewal and rebirth unless he is born from above. So my friends, if Nicodemus, with his knowledge with his gifts, with his position, with his integrity, cannot enter the kingdom by virtue of his standing and work. The question is, what hope is there for us? What hope is there for anyone who seeks salvation that way? And the answer is none. And sadly, that includes you and me. All of us must be born from above, born of the Spirit. And all this leads to this important conclusion that Jesus was offering Nicodemus that what the law could not give, God does by His grace. His story, this encounter that Nicodemus has with Jesus, reminds us that religion is good. But new birth is better. Yes, religion is good, but it cannot save. The new birth is better because Jesus offers salvation for anyone who looks to him. This conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus ends this way. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then verse 14. What Jesus does is he... Looks at a story from the Old Testament. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. takes us back to the Old Testament when the Israelites were wandering the desert for 40 years. They were complaining and grumbling before God. They were sinning against God. And so God sent these poisonous snakes that bit them in the desert. The snake would be the symbol of the curse, the punishment for their sins. They would be bitten there in the desert. And God would use these serpents as a way of reminding them, Israel, you're sinning. You're not good, according to the definition of of good that God gives. And then Jesus uses the same illustration that Moses does and says, um, I wrote it down. I wrote it down. Make a fiery serpent, this is again in the uh, book of uh, Numbers chapter 21, Uh, God tells Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, made it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, again, I mean... We have lots of medical personnel in in the room. I mean, it's like this is where it comes from Numbers 21. I love that. He would look at the bronze serpent and live. I mean, Jesus reiterating this fact, I mean, with with Nicodemus, he must be born again. Again, I don't know about any of you, but we had no part in being born. And again, what, what Jesus does is remind us of the. The grace that's given, nothing that's earned, right? Or we strive towards, but given by God as a gift to us. Anyone who looks at the bronze serpent will live. And the same instruments of a curse, which was the serpent in the wilderness and in the desert, is this same instruments that will be for their blessing and their life. And Jesus uses this illustration again in John chapter 3 verse 14 and says, "Anyone who looks at that bronze serpent will live." The copper snake or the bronze snake was a picture of God's vehicle of judgment on Israel for their sin. But the cross is a picture of God's judgment On sin. If it's just a picture of God's just judgment on sin, like the snake, the question is, who would be on the cross? It would be a substitute. There would be God's own son who would bear the just judgment that we deserve. Because in the final analysis, the cross is not only a picture of God's just judgment, but of his his lavish mercy in providing for us a substitute. And all we have to do is look. The story of goodness, I think, is a picture of my own life, growing up in a good family, uh, growing up in a sheltered home. Loving parents, I don't think I've ever did anything bad, not too bad. There was something about the message I heard when I was in seventh grade at a camp with other kids, and it was so strange. This kid who grew up in a sheltered, uh, I felt a uh, wonderful and, uh, and loving home. Felt the guilt of sin all at once, realizing that I wasn't as good. Because when you compare yourself and you define goodness not in your own terms, but you look at it in the way that God sees goodness, you realize how far, how far you actually. So in seventh grade, I committed my life to Christ. I made a profession of faith that said, Lord, I come from a good family. I have loving parents. I always wished, you know, I always wished that I was, uh, uh, you know, as, as I was growing up through high school, I always wished I had a better testimony, like I was a gangster. You know, I, I killed people <laughs> and I, uh, I, I sold drugs and I, you know, I went to jail for a hundred years, you know, and, I, and again, if that's your story, it's, it's awesome. Uh, it wasn't mine, and I and I I often wish I had a, had a more dramatic testimony. Um, but something about being in a room with other kids and and hearing the gospel for the first time, in seventh grade, the the weight of my guilt and the weight of my sin came heavy, it was bearing heavy on my heart, and I realized that that no good that I did would ever relieve this burden. That I had to trust Christ. And I need to just look, no striving, no earning, no working, just look, a glance of the cross and Jesus says, you will live. My sin held there on the cross. Those things that I had done, I mean, the little things that I felt like uh, were small things became big things, and I realized these these little things were heavy offenses before God, and I realized I needed a cleansing, I needed a renewal, I needed a rebirth. That's why I gave my life over to Christ when I was in seventh grade. And as a reminder that we don't need to strive anymore. That we don't need to keep on working. Every week we're reminded at the table that He's already completed the work, it's been finished. So, on the night that Christ was betrayed, He took bread as a way of reminding us that He's given His life as a substitute that we don't have to face punishment. Death and judgment and condemnation and said, this is my body, broke it. His body would be torn, a spear thrust his, through his side, a crown of thorns on his head. Again, these are all these, these images of what, uh, what Jesus meant when he said, my body broke it. And in the same manner, he took the cup. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant. Not the old way of doing things, but a new way. That Jesus, the Son of God, has provided a way for us. That by his blood, the lifeline, that which gives life, that which promises a eternal life, would be shed. And would be for the, he says, for the forgiveness of your sins. The breaking of the bread and the pouring of the wine as a symbol of God's great, lavish love for us. That again, what the law could not do, God provides us with his son. For by grace we have been saved through faith. And Paul says, this is not your doing. This is not your work, but a gift of God given to you.